Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for show number 146. Having a good time rolling these things out. Coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, as well as with video here on YouTube. I had mentioned earlier this week on Twitter that I was going to be doing uh, or was thinking about doing a podcast this week about the situation at the border with the kids and the cages and all this kind of stuff, and uh, realized that in order to actually tackle that subject appropriately and with uh, everything I would want, I would want to give it, I would actually have to do it on video. And I don't count on my sensibly speaking podcast to be something that is watched on video on YouTube only. It's, a, it's after all, this is a podcast, and it's meant to be listened to. Uh, and I can't show memes or debunk them, or show statistics, and that sort of thing. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to save that, and save that situation to talk about on video. And uh, this podcast instead is going to talk this week about something that has really been in my face the last couple weeks, uh, completely related to everything going on with this immigration and border situation, and many other things that I've been starting to look at and question in, uh, in, a, in a good way, uh, but a kind of a concerned way also uh, in terms of some of the things that I'm seeing going on with the left um, and their responses and, some, and, and the reason for some of the responses being that there are echo chambers going on. Uh, this is nothing new. This has been discussed. This has been talked about. Uh, I don't think it's been talked about ad nauseum. I don't think that the awareness of this is uh, really uh, such that everybody knows this and deals with their social media and news media accordingly. In fact, if anything, it's only getting worse. So this is definitely a topic that needs to be talked about more. It, that we need more education about this. And I thought I would try to do my best to throw some ideas out there through my podcast that might help, you know, uh, with this topic, uh, since I have, as my cult experience, <laughs> I have more than a little knowledge and information about how echo chambers work, because it's not just something that happens on social media. It can happen in real life. It all, it's all about, you know, who you surround yourself with. And on that note, let's go ahead and talk about this. Echo chambers, of course, is a, is a metaphorical term from uh, an actual chamber where echo happens. You know, you say, something, and, it, and those words just bat right, bounce right back at you. Echo chambers are, um, there's reference to these on social media where people get into groups, uh, Facebook groups, let's say, or on Twitter, where they are only hearing things that agree with what they think or they have to say. And when you limit your ability to intake information that doesn't challenge you or doesn't challenge your beliefs or ideas, then you get locked in to certain points of view or get locked into certain opinions. And if those aren't challenged in any way, then you could end up embracing and holding on to very, very, very incorrect information. And you make decisions based on that information. You act based on those beliefs or opinions or ideas. What you think are facts. Um, and in this day and age, seeing is not believing. 
Just because somebody shows a picture to you on the internet and says it is, you know, uh, XYZ doesn't mean that that is what it is. The picture could have been taken 10 years ago. Put, uh, it could have been photoshopped. Video nowadays is wholly unreliable uh, as news evidence of some kind. Because, And we've seen this. We've seen many, many examples of this. Um, on, on all ends of whatever spectrum you care to look at. Uh, on any, on almost any issue you care to look at, so scenes not necessarily believing, and we have to be more careful now than ever before about how we form our ideas. Echo chambers, unfortunately, are very comfortable. <laughs> they are amazingly comfortable. They do your thinking for you. You don't have to work. You don't have to exert any effort at all. Uh, you don't have to question anything. You don't have to wonder as to what the truth is. When you're in an echo chamber where other people are agreeing with you, where you agree with them, where everything is just, you know, this is how the world is, and of course it couldn't be any other way, well, this, is the, the, this just makes life very easy. And if there's one thing that a lot of us don't have these days, it is the time and energy to put into thinking to put into uh, figuring out what the truth is of the world. You know, what, what really happened? What's really going on? What's, um, you know, what, what's really happening on, uh, in places where we've never gone, couldn't go, uh, whether that's, you know, this, a city and a state across the way from you or in another country or on the other side of the world. So we're, we're burdened by the fact that we have to rely on the relay of information from, you know, distant places in order to get at the truth of something. Uh, even, even things that are not so distant places, but especially so with those. And so we lock ourselves into people that we think we agree with and who see the world the way we see the world, uh, at least initially. And we then start sharing ideas through social media or we start inflowing uh, information, news, pictures, video from news sources that we think are telling the truth because, of course, we think that our worldview is the truth. It's the one that matters. It's the one that's important to me. It's how I see things. And as long as ever the people who are telling me things also see things the way I do, then, of course, they're telling the truth. Of course. It, 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 you know, this is, this is, of course, I'm, I'm talking about bias here, but this is just natural to our thinking. Now, here's the thing. This is just one step away from how cults work. Uh, and I'm not saying that we're all living in cults. I'm saying that this is one step away from how cults operate when it comes to something called information control. If you... Steve Hassan put together something called the bite model, and that is for behavior, information, um, thought, and emotion control, okay? And information control is a powerful mechanism. If you control the information that goes to a person or a set of people, you pretty much control their thinking, and you pretty much can control their emotions, and you therefore can control their behavior. This is not any small thing. This is huge. And this is the bread and butter 
of cults. This is how they work. This is how they get people, you know, in their clutches, so to speak. And um, I honestly think that that you guys listening or watching this right now, uh, I think that this kind of information is one of the reasons why Scientology is a subject in the media and why my channel, uh, for example, is uh, gaining, you know, is gaining popularity. I mean, I just continue getting subscribers on my channel and I love it. It's, it's wonderful because it means more and more people are looking for more and more critical thinking and they're looking for uh, information beyond the salacious or naughty bits of Scientology. And, you know, you can go to TMZ, you can go to Celebrity Media, you can go to the, you know, the E! Channel or something, and you can get very salacious, very, you know, oh my God, I can't believe they did that sort of news. But, you know, when you come to my channel, you're going to get a deeper look. And, um, and I think that there is kind of an underlying uncertainty out there as to, as to what to think and, and, and how to think. And I think that, you know, the, the, the fake news, the concerns about fake news, I think, are part of this. But I think it's more than just not trusting our media sources. Social media is a huge concern for people these days because it is, you know, the way that it can, if, if it goes beyond cat videos for you, if you're using social media as a source of news, and according to statistics, many of us are, then it can be and should be concerning to watch things like the Pizzagate conspiracy get promulgated or the idea that, you know, giving your kids vaccinations is tantamount to dipping them in toxic waste. I mean, I I see articles like this come across my feed all the time. Uh, Fad diets, pseudoscientific cures. I mean, anything and everything that could possibly be wrong with you can definitely be cured by something you'll find on the Internet. So this is, you know, this is a problem, and I think people are trying to figure out how to deal with this. They, they, they know, they, they suspect, or they know that something's not quite right, but they don't know exactly what, and they don't know exactly what to do. So let's talk about a little bit of this. Um, there's a quote here from uh, The Guardian, actually. There was an article recently. Uh, it says, this proliferation, quote, this proliferation of urban myths and conspiracies would perhaps be laughable if it weren't so uniquely dangerous. An estimated 61% of millennials garner news primarily through social media. But in the process, we trigger algorithms that curate our feeds. These cherry-pick things which, with which we are likely to agree and jettison information that does not appear to fit our preferences, often at the cost of accuracy and balance. As the Knight Center observed in 2016, through social media, professional and other qualified news is mixed with unchecked information and opinions. Rumors and gossip get in the flow. Okay, end quote on that. Continue the Guardian quote. They also noted this tended to increase political polarization and warned people may be losing the skills to differentiate information from opinion. End quote. And that was a December 4th, 2017 article in The Guardian. And also, of course, I think the interest in my channel and, and similar things and Scientology and that sort of thing also has to do with an interest in extremist thinking. We see extremist thinking all the time. We think terrorists, we think cult members, but 
all you got to do is look around on your social media and you'll see plenty of examples on again on all ends of the spectrum of extremist thought. Now, I thought I'd point out in terms of relating this back to cult or destructive cult characteristics, there's a few of them that I have been seeing um, recently that I have been concerning to me. Let me throw a couple at you and you tell me in the comments what you think about some of these. One, the group displays excessively zealous and unquestioning commitment to its leader and whether he's alive or dead, regards his belief system, ideology, and practices as the truth, capital T, the truth, as law. Okay, I have seen plenty of excessively zealous and definitely unquestioning commitment to certain ideologies, certain leaders, uh, certain ideals, and it is perfectly acceptable, of course, to have strong values and to have a strong belief in your values. But unquestioning commitment, zealotry, these are not good words to be using when we're talking about how we think about things or whether we follow somebody. Um, Gurus are not a good thing to have in your life, whether they're political, religious, or any other field of your life. Another characteristic from my destructive cult checklist um, from Yanya Lalich and Michael Langione, they are the ones who actually put this together. Questioning, doubt, and dissent are discouraged or even punished. Now, of course, this in the, in the social media world would you know, be unfriending you or uh, worse when we see on Twitter or we see on social media that there are there's trolling campaigns. There are campaigns carried out against people who speak of, of a differing opinion to somebody. There are organized, you know, there are organized activities to ruin those people's lives. Uh, we've seen this again on all ends of the spectrum, and it is ugly every time it happens. It's quite shocking, actually, how invasive some people feel they have the right to uh, get when they feel that they're on a tear about taking somebody out because they don't agree with what he has to say, he or she has to say or has done or thinks. These are not the earmarks of a, of a civilized, rational society. And yet we see this. I mean, I, I don't think I'm, you know, it's, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. I'm sure if any of you have been paying any attention at all to uh, any level of social media, you will see this. And of course, this also happens throughout the news media. Uh, the next characteristic, the group is elitist, claiming a special exalted status for itself, its leaders, and members. And this goes hand in hand with the next one, which is the group has a polarized us versus them mentality, which may cause conflict with the wider society. Now, this gets interesting because you have, uh, historically speaking, you have a number of uh, marginalized groups and minority groups who have been persecuted merely because they existed. Uh, this is not acceptable behavior. Uh, you know, you can point to any number of these groups. As some of these groups have gained equal footing or have gained rights and have gained recognition, uh, which is a good thing, uh, almost universally, these have been, this has been a positive social change. Yet, this kind of us versus them thinking and the elitist thinking enters in when we get extreme on these groups. Again, left and right. 
And uh, this, because I'll talk about the religious right and the evangelicals just as much as I'll talk about the more extreme forms of feminism or uh, some of these other groups on the left. I mean, both ends of this are not, you know, there's no innocence on this. We're talking about human beings. And the human beings act pretty crazy sometimes. And any group can get zealots. It can get a lunatic fringe developing. Um, There are simply some people who are uh, unstable in some ways. And they have, uh, they they get part of some of these groups or some of these ideals that they glom onto. And then things get really oddly ugly very, very quickly. Um, So we want to watch for that. That's That's the kind of thing I'm talking about here. Uh, I'm not talking about anybody who, you know, has an idea. I'm talking about extremism here. So finally, uh, the other, the last characteristic in terms of cult characteristics that I wanted to throw out there that I think is, that we're seeing more of in uh, social media these days is the group teaches or implies that its supposedly exalted ends justify whatever means it deems necessary. This may result in members participating in behaviors or activities they would have considered reprehensible or unethical before joining the group. And I'll say group or cause or whatever. Um, So I have been seeing recently uh, amongst some of the left on social media literal calls for rioting, for violent civil protest, uh, for overthrowing our government. And these are not satirical. These are not sarcastic. These are real. That's crazy. We are not in any kind of situation right now where that sort of thing is called for. It's just not. And what I'm seeing is that the people who are doing that have gotten themselves into such a hysterical mindset, a la these cult characteristics, that I don't blame them for that kind of behavior. I'm simply noting it and raising the alarm. This isn't about blame. This isn't about, oh, my God, let's lock all these people up. This is about, could we please calm down? You know, when you... (laughs) There's a saying on the left that I've heard more than once uh, from journalists uh, on, on MSNBC. I've heard Chris Hayes say this. I've heard Rachel Maddow laugh with him about this. I have seen this in uh, on social media, on my Facebook page. I have seen this in print media. And that is, the truth has seems to have a left-leaning bias, which, of course, is a rather smug and extremely arrogant statement that the left has the truth on their side more often than the right. Well, they can pat themselves on the back about that. But what I have found is that the truth tends to have a calming effect. When when you get the whole truth of a situation, when you get like the whole picture, it tends to chill me at least out. I will speak for myself here, and maybe some of you have experienced this and maybe not. But I'm going to say that if I am frantic about something, if I'm feeling hysterical about something, if I'm feeling upset or antagonistic or I want to go shoot somebody or I want to go hurt someone because of you know some injustice that I feel is happening in the world. And of course, there are plenty of injustices that happen in the world. But when I get the whole picture of what's going on, 
when I take the time to look at not just some specific random, you know, incident of violence or some uh, incident of injustice, but if I step back and I look at the whole picture, and it takes time to do this, unfortunately, and we're not well served by the media because they don't give us the whole picture, at least cable news media uh, specifically, um, they're so interested in sound bites and now, now, now updates and giving you, you know, the latest information that has to have your attention right now that they don't ever seem to step back and give you the full picture. And every time I've gotten the full picture of something, it tended to chill me out because then I could understand what was actually happening and I wasn't involved in the franticness of the moment and the emotional upheaval of the moment. This was actually the reason why we changed the whole format of the Sensibly Speaking podcast uh, and I came up with Sensibly Speaking 2.0 because I was spending my time with Ruth, and who's my you know great friend of mine, and I and I love her to death. And uh, and this was in no way reflecting on her. This was me. I was the one creating this. We were going over the news of the day, and I was responding, and she was responding to these news reports, which were by definition incomplete reports because they were breaking news. They had just happened in the last day or two or three. And when you're doing a response, time-sensitive kind of podcast, you don't have the ability to have the full picture because the full picture hasn't developed yet. It takes weeks or even months of investigation on the part of the police, the government, authorities, whoever it is that we're talking about, in order to get and develop that full picture. So breaking news is often frantic and hysterical and emotional and, and, and high impact. And it sets your it sets your teeth on edge. It sets you, oh, oh my God, something has to be done about this. And you know, when you when you get the bigger picture, you find out that actually things are being done about it. Things have been done about it. Sometimes, of course, not all the time. There are injustices in the world, and there are bad things that happen to good people. And we should be rightly concerned about those. So I don't mean to paint with a black and white brush or or give the impression here that. You know, every time there's bad news, it's unjustified that we, you know, react to it. However, our reaction should be tempered by the fact that we don't have all the facts. We don't know all the information. And until we know all the information, we shouldn't go half-cocked off on how we should shoot this guy or hang this guy or, or throw this guy in jail forever or lock, throw him away and throw him in jail and lock, you know, lock the door and throw away the key and this kind of, you know, this kind of reactionary um thinking doesn't serve us and it doesn't serve the society as, as a whole, I, I, I think. Um, and I don't know that I'm the only one seeing this. You know, uh, in doing some research for this today, I came across a deadline article from today as I'm recording this here on Friday the 22nd uh, from Sarah Silverman, actually. She has uh, noted herself this echo chamber phenomenon that has overtaken the United States. Uh, she said, quote, we're all living in echo chambers. You think that your Twitter is giving you fair and balanced news, but you curate it. Now, she hosts a show called I Love You, America, and she has gone out of her way. Apparently, this is um, uh, on Hulu, and this was uh, something she's she's been doing this show in order to step out of her own echo chamber. And she said, it's a whole world that you have curated according to your thoughts and beliefs and we're not seeing what everyone else is seeing. I've learned so much with every interview I've done. 
I enjoy, at this point in my life, being changed by new information, and I am, Silverman said. I look at stuff I did years ago, and I don't stand by it. It's horrifying. But that's also the beauty of comedy. It isn't evergreen, and I can't erase stuff that I did. I can only now be changed by it. Well, I, I would say the same thing. You know, I can't look back at everything that I've ever said on this channel and the 500-plus videos that I've produced and say I stand by every single thing I ever said because that wouldn't really be very good critical thinking, would it? It wouldn't really show much development on my part if I thought the same way that I thought five years ago. If I said the same things now that I was saying five years ago, I don't think too many people would be very interested in what I had to say. It's a good thing that we can change our mind. It's a good thing for us to intake new information from sources that might feel at first uncomfortable to us, that might feel an antithetical to you know our positions, that might feel like they're the enemy. Why would I listen to the enemy? Because there's a lot you can learn from the enemy, and it doesn't mean you have to necessarily agree with everything they say. Maybe they say 10 things, and only two of them actually indicate to you as something that would be, oh, maybe he's got a point about that. But those are two more things you now know that you didn't know before. And there are eight other positions that you don't necessarily agree with, but at least you're aware of what the other side is saying and thinking and feeling. And that's helpful to clarify your own points of view. I did a very short 11-minute video this last week about that exact thing, about questioning our own side and about getting new information. And John Stuart Mill, uh, you know, back in the 1800s, gave a brilliant quote about this, about how you can't really understand your own position if you don't understand the opposing position. And this is, this, I think that is an, a, an incredibly important piece of information to have and to think with. In 1996, MIT researchers Marshall Van Alstein and Eric Bjornfolsen, I'm guessing at that name, warned of a potential dark side to our newly interconnected world. Now, this is all the way back in 1996, these two MIT researchers. These are, these are a couple smart cookies. And they said, quote, Individuals empowered to screen out material that does not conform to their existing preferences may form virtual cliques. Virtual meaning computer cliques, okay? Not virtual as an almost. So they may, may form virtual cliques, insulate themselves from opposing points of view, and reinforce their biases. Internet users can seek out interactions with like-minded individuals who have similar values and thus become less likely to trust important decisions to people whose values differ from their own, end quote. Van Alstein and Björn Jolfsen dubbed this fracturing of the online community cyber-balkanization. Ominously, they warned that the loss of shared experiences and values may be harmful to the structure of democratic societies as well as decentralized organizations, end quote. And I agree with that 100%. It just occurred to me the other day in a conversation that maybe, just maybe, all these crazy ideas, all these, this variety, this diversity of ideas that, that fly back and forth every day across the cybersphere and in real life, uh, we see it on TV, we see it on, in in 
when we go to debates or conversations or theater, you know, at theaters or or in local uh, libraries even. All these ideas that fly around, maybe that's exactly precisely what makes our democracy so strong. Maybe that's what makes us a democracy in the first place, is that we have the freedom and ability to share and argue and have differing ideas and have diverse opinions. Because the opposite of that is a totalitarian, authoritarian structure where we all have to think and say the same thing. And does any of us, do any of us really want that? Do we really want to all be marching in lockstep with one another, all in agreement? I don't think we do. If you think about that for a second, it's terrifying. And I don't know that we have enough awareness of what we're doing to ourselves these days in our society. Uh, I mean, the Trump situation has, has only made it, has only exacerbated it, has only shown these, these polarizations even more strongly. But this has been something that's been developing for many, many years and being warned about, uh, you know, almost 20 years ago by a couple of bright MIT folks, amongst many others, I'm sure. So this is, this is actually very important to the entire structure of our society. It actually is that important. And when we try to cut off other people who we disagree with, when we try to ruin them utterly, for any of you Scientology watchers out there, that might sound familiar because that's what L. Ron Hubbard said to do to his critics. Ruin them utterly. That's cult thinking. That's a destructive cult leader's advice as to what to do about people who are critical of him. And Scientology carries that out. And we all look at that, at the fair gaming of what goes on to Scientology critics and former members, and we go, my God, who would do such a thing? How could that happen? Why would the government let that happen? Well, guess what? We're the ones who let that happen. We're the ones who do that. And all of us are capable of it. And if you think you're not, I invite you to please take a look in the mirror and have an honest conversation with yourself about just what you are capable of. Because it's not like cult members or extremists on any side of any issue are not human beings. And it's not like all of us are not capable of falling into that way of thinking on some issue that we feel particularly passionate about, feel very strongly about, and are absolutely certain that we have the truth on our side. So we have to go deal with all those people who don't have the truth on their side, and we got to change them. And if they won't change, we have to destroy them. That's cult thinking, and that is echo chamber thinking, and that's what's going on these days. Now, I looked into this a bit because I thought, all right, I don't want to just, you know, be all doom and gloom and throw out a bunch of like, oh, my God, this is so horrible. And what the hell is wrong with all of us? I wanted to look at why this happens. And I'm, you know, I'm not a psychologist or uh, yet, <laughs> but I have studied a lot of this stuff. And, of course, I've talked about these mechanisms before on my, in some of my videos and some of my earlier podcasts. And it really does come back to this. When you look at why would we step into echo chambers and stay there? Well, there is a psychological mechanism at play here, and it's called confirmation bias. Now, I, I, confirmation bias is, is, is very simple mechanism. It is, you know, basically, but it's interesting. It's a very interesting one because it really literally affects our perception 
of reality. It's not just something that happens in your head. Well, it does. I mean, it's a psychological mechanism, but it's but it actually affects your ability to see and hear and perceive the world. It's that powerful. And it is the mechanism of us only seeing what we want to see, only hearing what we want to hear, rejecting things that don't fit with our worldview. And I wonder, I really wonder if we could see the world through other people's eyes, whether we would see the same world we see through our own. I, I am just, uh, if there's some mechanism that ever is invented that allows us to do that, I will be one of the first to sign up for it because I would really be interested in, in seeing and perceiving things through another person's eyes. A guy named uh, Sharam Hashmat wrote in Psych- uh, Psychology Today in April 23rd, 2015, uh, an article called What is Confirmation Bias? And he said, Confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. When people would like a certain idea or concept to be true, they end up believing it to be true. They are motivated by wishful thinking. This error leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views, i.e. prejudices, one would like to be true. Once we've formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubt on it. Confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively we pick out those bits of data that make us feel good because they confirm our prejudices. Thus, we may become prisoners of our assumptions. For example, some people will have a very strong inclination to dismiss any claims that marijuana may cause harm as nothing more than old-fashioned reefer madness. Some social conservatives will downplay any evidence that marijuana causes harm. Confirmation bias can also be found in anxious individuals who view the world as dangerous. For example, a person with low self-esteem is highly sensitive to being ignored by other people, and they constantly monitor for signs that people might not like them. Thus, if you're worried that someone is annoyed with you, you're biased toward all the negative information about how that person acts toward you. You interpret neutral behavior as indicative of something really negative. And I'm sure all of us have friends, or we've done this ourselves, where we can relate. And, uh, and you know, and, and sometimes that can even be, I know I've had a couple friends who, you know, did you did I did I do something to upset you? Did, did is everything okay with us? And then this is kind of out of the blue. You're like, what 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 do you mean? What's wrong? What are you talking about? And I, you know, what huh? And you know, they seem very concerned and they seem, you know, worried, and and you go, no, no, it's a, you know, and if you, of course, you chill. Nah, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Simply because you didn't look at them when you walked in the room or you didn't call them or, or whatever, you know, whatever the reasoning might be. So, um, so this confirmation bias on their part will, inter- you know, they'll be interpreting everything you do as something negative towards them when you're not even thinking about them. You're not, it's not even in your headspace at all. Now, why does confirmation bias occur? I mean, we have these. We have a couple hints at it here in this quote from uh, Dr. Heshmat, where he talks about how uh, the, the desire 
They want something to be true. It's, it's motivated reasoning has been another term that's been associated with this. And, um, and of course, it makes us feel good. It's, you know, or it makes us feel bad. I mean, whatever, what is, whatever the bias is that we're confirming, there's an emotional element to it. But is that really enough? Well, I, I dug around a little bit because I wanted to see what some of the reasoning was behind this. And I don't know that we really have a full bottom line explanation for what this is all about. But here were some things that I found uh, in, in some quick looking at this. Um, confirmation bias is often described as a result of automatic unintentional strategies rather than deliberate deception. In other words, we're not trying to fool ourselves. This, isn't a, this doesn't occur at a conscious level necessarily. We uh, want things to be a certain way. It's a desire that we have. It's an emotional feeling we have. And so unintentionally, without thinking, we act this way to reject information that come, might come our way that we go, mm, you know, just, just no, just no. Uh, you're being contrary. I don't know. I don't want to hear it. Or uh, if we even let ourselves get that far when we're by ourselves, we just don't see it. (laughs) That's a little scary. Uh, You also have uh, another factor here that could play into this also is the fact that uh, it's very difficult to entertain more than one idea at a time. And some people actually can't do that. You can only think, you know, about or, uh, you know, when it comes to handling complex tasks, or uh, being able to think about more than one thing at a time, you know, our abilities are sometimes limited with that. Sometimes it depends on the subject matter that we're dealing with. When it's something we're really familiar with, it's not a problem. When it's something that's new to us, we're learning about it, we're not so sure about it, it's easier to reject that information or ignore certain bits and pieces of it that don't fit in with how we already view the world. According to experiments, that manipulate the desirability of the conclusion, people demand a high standard of evidence for unpalatable ideas and a low standard for preferred ideas. So, you know, and I, of course, you see this all the time on social media when you challenge somebody's ideas and they go, well, what, show me, show me the proof of that. Well, where's the evidence of that? Whereas if you agreed with them, the standard would be much lower you might cite some article that agrees with them, and they're not even going to look at it. They're, oh, yes, of course, absolutely, that's true. And so, <laughs> uh, and of course, all the logical fallacies start kicking in, too. Uh, you try to suggest, for example, that you may, they might want to read this article on climate change because this might show that actually, you know, there's a lot of scientific consensus on this, and the person just rejects it out of hand because, oh, that's, that's New York Times. They never tell the truth. And so they're, you know, they're, 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 you know, they're just, they're just, no, I, I want, it has to be from a source I agree with. It has to be from a source that I've seen, you know, something from before. And uh, that's already agreed with my other, con, you know, that already confirms my other biases, you know, this kind of thing, right? They, 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 like I said, the logical fallacies just sort of line right up here. And then there is this. Psychologists Jennifer Lerner and Philip Tetlock Distinguish two different kinds of thinking process. Exploratory thought neutrally considers multiple points of view and tries to anticipate all possible objections to a particular position, while confirmatory thought seeks to justify a specific point of view. Okay, two different ways of thinking. Exploratory thinking and confirmatory thinking. Lerner and Tetlock say, 
that when people expect to justify their position to others whose views they already know, they will tend to adopt a similar position to those people and then use confirmatory thought to bolster their own credibility. However, if the external parties are overly aggressive or critical, people will disengage from thought altogether and simply assert their personal opinions without justification. Lerner and Tetlock say that people only push themselves to think critically and logically when they know in advance they will need to explain themselves to others who are well-informed, genuinely interested in the truth, and whose views they don't already know. Because those conditions rarely exist, they argue, most people are using confirmatory thought most of the time. And of course, my argument here is that we should be using exploratory thought a lot more often. All right, now I thought it might be kind of fun to give you guys some examples in my own life of times that I have been in some very deep and very serious echo chambers. And um, I guess ways that I have sort of clawed my way out of them. Back before I joined the Sea Organization, back in the early 90s, I was a ditto head. And a lot of people are really surprised by that. And of course, knowing me now, you should be. Uh, I was a follower of Rush Limbaugh. I read his books. Um, and uh, I, I think the, one, you know, the Way Things Ought to Be was the first one. And um, See, I Told You So was the second one. And this is back when Rush was really gaining a lot of popularity. He went from local syndicated radio to nationally syndicated radio. And he got a TV show. And his very, very stark conservative views were being aired to the, you know, you know, the world at large. And I found myself uh, in a place in Scientology where I was agreeing with a lot of what Rush had to say, because it lined up with a lot of things and values that L. Ron Hubbard seemed to be espousing. And, um, and also, I was young and stupid. <laughs> I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rationalize following that windbag, because Rush Limbaugh is uh, he's a lot of hot air, and he always has been. And I look back today at some of the things that were in those books because I thought to myself, I, I can barely remember uh, much of it. I'll tell you one thing that appealed to me about Rush Limbaugh was that he was funny. He told jokes and he presented information, extremely bad information, in a very funny way. He would come up with these little songs and jingles and um, and not ads, but little little clips of things. This was before the internet and before YouTube, so he wasn't doing little video clips necessarily, but he would do these little audio things on his radio shows. And I laughed at them. I thought that they were genuinely hilarious. And I laughed at uh, the feminazis. I laughed at the uh, bungee condom ads. I mean, you know, just ridiculous things, things that I look back on now and I go, hmm. Uh, I can see, you know, kernels of truth in some of what he was saying, but so much of it, so much of his rhetoric is just hype and hype, you know, and and, and so fallacious uh, when it comes to the logic of his claims. So Rush is somebody I can pretty easily dismiss now. At the time, I'm not sure exactly what happened to turn me off from him. I think he said some things about abortion that I didn't agree with. And also, I think he just kind of went by the wayside. And then I joined the Sea Organization. And you want to talk about living in a bubble world echo chamber. Oh, my God. So I wasn't paying any attention to politics, hardly at all, except for what was on the front page of the newspapers or very readily accessible 
or, you know, the word of the day sort of thing. I mean, 9-11 was unignorable. Uh, who the president was was unignorable. I mean, we paid attention to, to things to that degree. But I think Rush just kind of uh, went by the wayside. And and my values changed over the time that I was in the Sea Org and in Scientology. As I found myself becoming more and more disaffected with the you know rigors and authoritarianism of Scientology, I found my ideas becoming a little bit more, you know, moving to the left and becoming more liberal, personal freedoms and, uh, you know, fighting the establishment and that sort of thing became much more, you know, sensible to me. Uh, Scientology, of course, talking about a bubble world, this is, uh, this was the ultimate echo chamber because cults encourage echo chamber behavior. And that's actually maybe even a test of whether you're involved with a group that is, uh, an echo chamber cult-like group is, you know, what do they encourage? Do they encourage you to look at other points of view? Do they encourage you to get well-rounded education? Do they say it's a good idea to find to know what the enemy is saying and thinking and doing? Or do they want you to tunnel vision in on only your side? And because your side is the only thing that really matters, and your side is the only side that really has any truth, so why would you want to look at anything opposing what we have to say? This was absolutely the logic of Scientology. And I bought into it because I thought, we got the truth, man. Capital T, we got the truth. Oh, you know, this was, this was uh, religious, you know, it was uh, epiphanies and this sort of thing. And, and we, got the, we got life nailed down. We know exactly how it all works. And, you know, those questions that you have that are sitting in the back of your head, yeah, don't don't worry about those. That'll all get sorted out when you get to the highest levels. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? So, uh, so that was pretty bad. Now, coming out of Scientology, I looked around at the big wide world at large, and I thought, hmm, I don't want to go from one cult to another, of course, and I grabbed onto critical thinking and skepticism as uh, good philosophies for approaching and thinking about life. And those have served me very well. But it's been an ongoing process. I'm just as human as everybody else, and I have just as many foibles. In fact, if anything, and I'm going to be totally honest here, I have a uh, noted in myself a, a kind of proclivity to go to extreme ends of things and look at things from, from that angle. And that's not a good thing. I recognize that that is not a good personality trait on my part. Nobody told me that. That was something I, I actually did come to on my own. Because I saw that, and, and how I came to that, is the next echo chamber, which was uh, moving into the left, uh, and the left left progressive way of thinking. And I still espouse progressive values. I'm not going to say that, you know, everything on the left is horrible. That's not true at all. Most of it's great. Um, I, I very much believe in, in positive social change, equal rights. Um, I don't believe in um, equal outcome. I believe in equal opportunity. Uh, out, equal outcome is a whole different thing, and that's where you have to get into all kinds of crazy regulations and, and enforce them and uh, in order to you know, make sure that everybody gets a fair shake and everybody's outcome is the same for everybody. That's, that goes right back into everybody marching in lockstep, saying and thinking and doing the exact same things, and I am not about that. So, um, so I'm about, you know, more, uh, you know, being open and communicative and, and uh, creative and about being, uh, letting people be who they want, do what they want, as long, of course, as it's not harmful to uh, others. 
And this, of course, very much includes free speech. Well, what tended to what I started started seeing in my own world of the left, and I, of course, I juxtaposed myself with the right and with conservatism, a position I used to hold. So I understood some of it, and I still said that, well, you know, I'm fiscally conservative, and I didn't really give too much thought to what that meant. And um, and I thought that, you know, there are certain things, of course, that, that people on the right hold as valuable and as, as important. And I could agree with some of those things. But I thought mostly I'm leaning more towards the left. But as I leaned more and more and more to the left, as I went further along on the spectrum, I started seeing things that were making me a little uncomfortable. And they were reminding me of mindsets that I had been in earlier when I was in Scientology and even in my ditto head time. And I started seeing that if I was going to cling to these more extreme ideas, that I was going to have to change some of the things that I thought were most important in life, like freedom of speech. And I thought, no, uh, because freedom of speech is heavily allied with freedom of thought. And I, I'm, that's a value I'm never going to give up. So when people are calling for the censure of others for their personal ruin, right? Remember, ruin them utterly? I can't get behind that because, you know, when they're calling for that because they disagree with what that person's saying. No, I, I, I'm not going to go there, you know, and I don't care if the guy's a Nazi. I'm not going to go there. If you want to take out a Nazi, then you put out better ideas louder than they do. That's what you do. You, you get more people on your side through, you know, good reasoning and through sound rationale and through protests. I mean, sure, of course, go out there and do protests. I have nothing against that at all. It's, a, it's a, one of our rights under our Bill of Rights to freedom to assemble. Get out there and do it. But this business of beating them into submission, you know, go punch a Nazi, screw that. I'm not going to ever do that because, because values are relative. And what is today are your values that are worth killing for, worth punching people for, worth taking them out, worth ruining them utterly. Well, today, those are your values, and you might be able to garner a bunch of support or rally people around you in order to be able to do that. But what happens tomorrow when your values are the ones that the majority doesn't agree with? And now they want to punch you and ruin you utterly and take you out because you dared to open your mouth and have an opinion about something. When the shoe's on the other foot, suddenly things get very uncomfortable. And this is a fact that people on the extreme end of the left refuse to look at because they're so sure that they're right and no other possible way could possibly ever be right. And that's what I started seeing that made me go, whoa, I got to back away from this. This is not what I'm about. And I've been seeing other people doing that too, and we'll get to that. Um, so I also found, um, well, let me, uh, let, me, let me say this. I started seeing as I was backing away from some of these more extreme elements on the left that the people who were not so extreme, and this is actually important, the people who are my friends, the people who I interact with, the people who I get along with, when I started pointing this out, they said, you're full of shit. You're wrong. You're, uh, th that's, the, that's a fringe element. That's a very small minority. We don't think that. We don't think that that's true. That's no big deal. Uh, excuse me? Freedom of speech is a very big deal. And if I'm going to say, put out there, that there are people on our side 
who want to curtail anyone's freedom of speech, who want to destroy people because they espouse views that are different from, their, from, from the extremists, if I point this out and your reaction to that is, that's no big deal, eh, who cares? Yeah, that bothers me, but you know, those are just, there's just a couple people doing that. And I go, yeah, no, actually, this is a bigger problem than you think. See, they don't see the problem because when they're in a left-wing echo chamber, they're only hearing from people on the left. And they're not going to be hearing voices that are critical of people on the left. And so they're not exposed to how big of a problem this is. And it is a very big problem. It is rampant in our universities, and this is, a, this is a big deal because these are future generations we're talking about. And this has already been going on for decades. So it's a big concern to me, and I raise this up, and I get told, eh, what's the big deal? So I then say again, no, this is a big deal. Hey, this, let's, let's talk about this. And then I start losing those friends because they think I'm talking insanity. They think I'm crazy. They think I've gone off the deep end or something. And I go, wow. Or they just stop talking to me at all. And I thought, huh, this is very interesting. Because it's not just the extremists that, that, that the extremists have the extreme views. But their influence goes all the way across the spectrum. And the more mild elements on the left the more, you know, the people who are actually able to carry on sane, rational conversations and just want a good world where people can get along, which is, you know, most of my friends, they don't see this problem and they won't look at this problem. And so I have to look at them and go, hmm, I think there's a little bit more to this echo chamber than I thought there was. And I started looking at this phenomenon and that's what prompted me to make this podcast. Because I saw that I'm not alone in this. It's actually happening on the left and it's happening on the right. It's happening on both ends. Everything I've been saying so far is not just a left-wing problem. And if you've been watching this and thinking that I'm finally tearing down the left and I'm moving over to the right, then you're not quite tracking with where I'm coming from on this. This I'm using my recent experiences with the left as a problem that is actually a problem on all ends of every spectrum. Um, on the left, there's a guy named Dave Rubin, who I, I came across pretty fast in, in Google searches on this because he had a left-wing talk show that he was doing that he still does called The Rubin Report. And he said about a year or two ago that he had to separate himself in the same way I'm talking about right now. And he's been joined by many other people who previously called themselves left-wing but now they don't really know what to call themselves. They can't call themselves Democrats because the Democratic Party doesn't seem to at all be aligned with their worldview or their progressive values. And they can't really call themselves the left anymore, at least not over as far left as they were, because, you know, therein lies some, some pretty crazy activity and some pretty crazy behaviors. So they feel a little out on their own. And that's kind of in the direction where I'm moving. And I, if anything, I'm going to, you know, you're going to start calling this being more centrist. But that's, a, again, these are all relative terms because what's, you know, what's what's uh, conservative here in the United States, I'm told, is, is fairly liberal in Europe or something. I don't know. I always get those confused because I don't live in Europe and I don't understand European politics. 
So I only speak in terms of, you know, when I, when I can, what I can really understand and get my, my wits around are American politics. So I have to use American political terms in order to talk about this stuff. But I noted in researching this and in looking into this in order to put this podcast together that conservatives are also doing this exact same thing with the Republican Party. And it's been going on for a long time before Trump even came around. There was an article by a guy named Nathan Hardin, which I thought pretty much summarized um, where some of the disaffection on the right is coming from. And, of course, it made complete and total sense to me that I would find something like this and find people who have this sort of thing. The first place I found it was on Quora, actually, because I go on Quora, which is a great site to, you know, have people ask questions and be able to answer them. And I've answered some questions about Scientology and religion and cults, and it's been it's been a lot of fun using Quora. And I always learn the most fascinating things there. Well, the other day, I saw a guy who said, I'm conservative, but the GOP does not represent my values in any way, shape, or form, so I can't call myself a Republican. And I, But I do hold conservative values. Well, Dave Rubin, on the opposite end of the spectrum, says, I'm a classic liberal. I'm not, a, you know, a liberal in the sense that these extreme leftists call themselves liberal. I can't use that label anymore because that's not what I am. So I found it interesting that it was on the other side. And here's an article from this uh, 2010 by Nathan Hardin. And he writes, hey, GOP, here's a wake-up call. Gallup reports that the number of 18 to 29-year-olds who identify as Republicans fell from 41% to 32% over the course of the Bush presidency. I'm a young conservative, but like many conservatives my own age, I don't consider myself a Republican. The turning point for me occurred during the 2004 GOP convention in New York. I was a student at the time and had finagled a press pass for the week under the auspices of my college newspaper. One night during the convention, there was a huge party hosted by Representative David Dreyer from California dubbed Dreyer's Big Apple Martini and Bowling Party. My friends and I vowed to crash it. Dreyer's party was held in a bowling alley in Greenwich Village. Above the bowling lanes on the fifth floor was a nightclub, nightclub called Pressure Lounge. It was when I reached this area that my eyes beheld the evening's surprise entertainment. My 13-year-old fantasies materialized before my eyes. There was a pole dancer writhing around in black lingerie to the accompaniment of Billy Squire tune, The Stroke. When a pole dancer's performance is paid for by the quote-unquote party of family values, it's a strange thing indeed. I'll never forget the open-mouthed look on the faces of an elderly couple standing next to me. They had left a tidy ranch house in some quiet suburban town in order to come to the Republican convention, and they never imagined it would end in a striptease. Up until that night, the Republican brand had carried, for me, a connotation of moral superiority. Afterward, I realized my naivete. Republicans had quite a decade. The Wilsonian mire in Iraq, an enormous prescription drug entitlement program straight from the Great Society playbook, careless deficit spending. By the time Roberts and Alito came around, you weren't allowed to like Bush anymore. For a long time, I refused to believe that our leaders had authorized torture. But Cheney and his apologists made that disbelief impossible to sustain when they openly advocated waterboarding. The ticking time bomb scenario, they argued, justified extreme measures in the defense of the country. 
but they forgot what it was about the country that made it worth defending in the first place. By the time Sarah Palin hit the scene, I realized just how cynical the party had become. I watched countless right-leaning politicians and pundits line up to dutifully espouse the greatness of a plainly unqualified candidate. End quote. So it's not just me and it's not just the left. These cult-like characteristics and behavior that we can see so plainly in Scientology or the Jehovah's Witnesses or even the later stages of it with the Mormons these days, we can also see in our own political parties, our own social groups, on our social media, in our day-to-day activities if we actually open our eyes and look. And I invite everybody out there to please open your eyes and look because it's out there to be seen. And its influence will only be lessened or eradicated to the degree that you and I stand up and say something about it and stop behaving like we're little cult members. (laughs) And I, of course, I use that term with some hyperbole and exaggeration. Uh, So don't take me literally on that. But do take me literally when I say, look around and look at what other people around you are saying and doing and maybe question some of the things that might be going on that you think, I don't know that I signed up for that. I don't know that that's really true. I'm not so sure about that. And one question will lead to another and it'll lead to another. And you might be surprised at some of the behavior of some of your friends or some of your allies or some of the people that you thought were on your side. When you start questioning, just questioning what's going on, not even taking a stand and saying this is horrible and wrong, because that can be hard. It can be damn hard, you know, and some of us have very vested, you know, are very invested in some of our groups and in some of our friendships and in some of our allies. And so it can be hard. And I believe me, I walked out of Scientology. I know how hard it can be. I've I've been there, done that. And I'm, in a way, doing some of that now again. Uh, I, You know, I love all my friends. I don't want to make this personal to them, and I don't intend to. And I'm not going to, you know, go the route of, if you think X, then unfriend me. If you think X, then we can't be friends anymore. Because I think that that kind of thing is the exact extremism that I'm trying to rally everybody against. So... With that in mind, I hope that you found this podcast somewhat informative, somewhat entertaining, and somewhat educational. That was its intention. I am more than happy to entertain any comments or criticisms or questions you might have about this. Put them in the comment section on my YouTube channel or uh, at sensiblyspeaking.com. Thank you very much for coming around this week and listening to what I had to say, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.